Hello and welcome to another edition of Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols. My guest today is Dr. Bruce Whitehead, Senior Staff Specialist in Paediatric Respiratory and Sleep Medicine at the John Hunter Children's Hospital in Newcastle, and he's a Conjoint Associate Professor at the University of Newcastle. Dr. Whitehead, thank you for coming in and taking the time out to come and talk to me. Uh, Good morning, Iris, and thanks for inviting me. Respiratory conditions and sleep disorders seem to be a bit diverse. How do they fit together? Well, a combination of of conditions. Um, The respiratory conditions are the ones you're probably familiar with, such as asthma, cystic fibrosis, uh, and um, sort of a a miscellaneous group. Um, Sleep disorders in children mainly revolve around uh, obstructive sleep problems. Um, So it's related to having big tonsils and big adenoids, and so it's part of the respiratory system, so that's how it works. Probably uh, don't get involved as much with behavioural sleep problems as uh, as probably a lot of your listeners are (laughs) concerned about, but this is more sleep disorder breathing in children. So it's whether you have to prop a child up or lie them flat or those sorts of things? Yes, I guess uh, we see a lot of children with snoring. That's mm. sort of the, the major group that we see. Um, and uh, snoring, probably about 10% of children snore. And of those, probably about 10% have significant obstruction during the night. So the obstructive sleep apnea that you're probably familiar with in adult practice. Mm. Different causes in children, but um, certainly nevertheless it's a, a, a major problem and can, can affect their uh, growth and development. We might pick that up a bit later in the program. Sure. But for the time being, will you tell me a bit about your background? What made you interested in children's welfare? Well, I have always had an affinity for for dealing with children. I was once a child myself. Really? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, uh, I always find them refreshingly honest. And uh, I think certainly in my medical career, sort of dealing with children, they, they become sick. You know when they're sick. But once you treat them and um, make them well, they, they bounce out back up and uh, are healthy as, uh, as, as, as normal. So it's really an exciting sort of group to treat, if you like. Mm. Um, and I just felt, an, as I said, an affinity um, for dealing with them and uh, have always enjoyed, enjoyed that. I suppose uh, when you're doing your, your student years and different uh, specialties there, uh, I felt much more comfortable in dealing with children than with the grown-ups. Mm. I, I did first up want to uh, become an obstetrician, but um, once I did obstetrics as a, as a student, uh, that was enough for me, and I thought I'd just go to a... <laughs> <laughs> go the next step up. <laughs> next step up, yes. <laughs> Have you always worked in Australia? No, I, uh, I did train in Australia. I, I did my medical degree in University of New South Wales and did uh, about three postgrad years in Australia, um, and then, in fact, went to the UK for a year's working holiday and... Um, was going to do general practice training over there, but in fact uh, got into paediatrics um, very much and met my wife and uh, stayed 15 years um, and did most of my, well, all of my uh, paediatric postgraduate training over there. Were you involved with Great Ormond Street Children's? I was indeed. I worked mm-hmm. there for over a decade and um, involved in a, a very uh, specialised area in, in heart-lung transplantation um, in children at uh, Great Ormond Street Hospital. Were these heart-lung transplants, were they for kids mainly with cystic fibrosis? They, they were the major group that we dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, fortunately, uh, I think um, the, the care for children with cystic fibrosis has improved and not as many children require transplantation as they did way back 20 years or so ago. Um, but, uh, yeah, they were the major group. And there were other, other patients, those with congenital heart problems, uh, with um, what we call 
elevated pressure in their lungs associated with that that required heart-lung transplantation. But probably 75-80% were those with cystic fibrosis. What sort of percentage of children in England were affected by cystic fibrosis? Yes, it's the same uh, in our population as well. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, most common in the Caucasian population, and about 1 in 2,500 uh, children are affected with cystic fibrosis. That's the incidence uh, uh, of cystic fibrosis in our white Caucasian population. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1 in 25 uh, of the population are carriers for the, the gene defect that causes mm-hmm. cystic fibrosis. So it's um, uh, one person with a carrier, another uh, has a baby with another carrier and Mm. uh, they have a one in four chance of having an affected child with this condition. Do you see a a lot of cystic fibrosis? Yes, they're they're a big group um, uh, that we look after. We we have a a clinic at the Children's Hospital here in Newcastle um, around 65. I like to uh, to sort of broadcast that um, that we've had such great success in the care of children with cystic fibrosis who used to not make it through childhood, now living into their adulthood um, and living very fulfilled, uh, productive lives um, as uh, as adults with this condition. But um, we probably have as many in the adult clinic now as we do in the paediatric clinic, which is uh, awe-inspiring. Do they do the heart-lung operations here? Certainly in adults, uh, as I said, the uh, indication in children is, is not as um, major as it used to be, but uh, the few children are being done in Melbourne. Um, mm. no, no other centres in uh, Australia do children, uh, heart-lung transplants. Um, having said that, uh, in St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, uh, we'll uh, look after adolescents um, mm. for this uh, problem and uh, we'll do heart-lung transplants in those. Very few have been done in Australia. Organ donation in Australia is not terribly popular overall. What sort of response do you get from, I guess it comes from the parents, they've lost a child. If you ask them for the donation, what sort Mm. of response do you get? I mean, not you personally, but the the medical profession. Sure. Well, I think it's um, something that's... That we all need to think about. Um, you know, on our driver's license, we uh, nominate whether we want to be organ donors as well. Mm. Um, but uh, I think it's important that organ donation is discussed uh, amongst family members. It's not it's one thing just signing consent, but it's also making sure that um, your wishes are known to the rest of the family. Mm. In children, it's obviously a lot more emotional uh, topic. Um, we, the specific criteria for being an organ donor, especially for heart and lung uh, organ donation, uh, and they have to be in, in, in very good condition. They have to actually have brain death rather than sort of general mm. body death, if you like. Mm. Um, so the specific circumstances that you can actually uh, be an organ donor. And I guess it's a, it's a very traumatic time to approach families about it. Mm. So that's why it's, it's something that you know, people need to, to consider, not dwell on, but mm. to, to consider. Um, I guess it goes along with all the things like um, making a will and organising your funeral and all of those sorts of things that you think about maybe plan but be aware of. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yes, you, mm. As I say, you don't want to be, uh, be morbid about it, mm. um, but uh, something to consider. And certainly, you know... Uh, an organ donor can give um, new life to many recipients. Mm. Does it matter for the age of, of the donor for the recipient? For example, say a child of five or six who needs the donation, would it have to be a, the donor have to be in that same age group? Yes, it's more related to size rather than, than age, mm. but uh, you, know, you couldn't put a, 
hundred kilo um, uh, heart and lung into a you know a twenty kilo uh, child, mm. but um, uh, it, it's, it's sort of in the, the same ballpark region, if you like. Mm. But it's it's to say it's more height and weight related rather than age related. Overall, do you think that we're looking at being organ donators in a wider view these days than we were, say, a few years ago? Yes, I think so. I mean, I've, I'm now out of um, that sphere, I suppose, mm. but um, I think it's it's more um, more topical, um, mm. and uh, we're not just talking about heart lung transplantation, you know, renal transplantation, uh, corneal transplantation. Mm. Uh, lots of different organs now um, able to be transplanted and um, with great results. Uh, liver transplantation is one of the success stories, of course. And I, th- I guess uh, it's something that uh, that people think about a bit more often. I guess uh, there was always the possibility of trying to develop animal donors. Uh, unfortunately, that doesn't seem to have been as successful as uh, the first It seems hope. to have died off. It, yes, 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 the pun. Yes, <laughs> yes so the, the, uh, the, pig, the pig donor was... Um, mm. You came with a bit of a fanfare a few years ago, but unfortunately hasn't really been as successful uh, as we would have hoped. You're listening to Wellbeing, and today I'm talking with Dr. Bruce Whitehead. Dr. Whitehead, we've sort of mentioned cystic fibrosis as a condition, and I guess most of us have heard about it, but overall the general public don't know much about it. How does it actually affect the patient? Sure. Well, as I mentioned uh, before, it is an inherited condition. Um, so two carriers uh, have a child and there's a one in four chance of having an affected uh, individual. The um, biochemical defect that uh, causes uh, this disease is a, a problem with transporting um, salt across membranes. So the, uh, the effect is that in the lungs, uh, they get very thick, tenacious sputum or mucus mm-hmm. um, collecting, and that causes obstruction in the lungs and um, later infection and often severe damage to the lungs. In the gastrointestinal tract, it can affect the pancreas and the similar problem that can cause obstruction to the ducts of the pancreas. Uh, and that can cause uh, damage to the pancreas. And the, the pancreas is a very important organ as far as uh, producing enzymes which break down food. So um, they, these patients get what's called a malabsorption. They can't absorb their food properly mm-hmm. and, of course, poor growth uh, as a result. They can also sweat a lot and uh, lose a lot of salt um, in their sweat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also have other, other problems such as reproduction, um, particularly in males. Uh, they, uh, m- many males are infertile uh, as a result of this condition. But the, the two main areas that are a, a problem are in the lungs where they mm-hmm. get chronic infections. Mm-hmm. Uh, often patients will have respiratory failure um, with time and the poor nutrition because of the gut problems as well. I suppose overall as they age then the rest of their body takes the toll of, of these particular organs that are affected? Sure. Um, <clears throat> obviously, uh, we're seeing greater success with our treatments, um, which, is, which is terrific. When I first started practice in the early 80s, most, tr- most patients with cystic fibrosis were dying in their teens. Uh, nowadays, they're living into their adulthood, well into their adulthood, 30 and 40 years of age, and um, that's very exciting. But it's comes with uh, a lot of work, uh, mm. both for the patients and the, particularly the families when the young children being um, being treated. So regular physiotherapy, lots of um, medications, 
inpatient and outpatient care. So it's a it's a pretty big burden for um, for patients and families to to deal with. But it can take its toll, and um, obviously uh, it's not just a, a physical toll, but an emotional toll, um, <coughs> and uh, it can lead to problems at school, for instance, for, for Jordan. Can in adulthood uh, problems with getting employment and the like. Um, so it, it can have major psychosocial implications as well. I suppose I hadn't taken it through on that next step about them finding employment. I guess their employer would need to be fairly generous in the time they have off. That's correct. Um, adult patients with this condition you know, often get chest infections. They have to uh, be admitted to hospital to have treatment. And obviously, you know, they may just not be well enough to attend work uh, on a regular basis. Mm. We do require that the uh, employers are understanding um, and uh, give some slack to these, uh, these patients. But um, I can tell you uh, patients with this condition often are, are very intelligent, um, very bright, and um, they, can, they can lead very productive lives, given the chance. Once upon a time, I suppose, we thought about a child being sick and, and they were kept indoors and away from coughs and colds and all of those things. But in fact, they become quite active and, and have quite active sporting lives too, don't they? They can. We certainly encourage lots of activity. Um, physiotherapy, as I mentioned before, is, is one of the mainstays of treatment in uh, this condition. They do that regularly. And, of course, um, regular exercise is part of that mm. Um, uh, that regimen as well. So uh, we encourage lots of activity. Swimming is always a good activity for any ch any person with a respiratory problem, mm. um, let alone cystic fibrosis, but asthma and the, the like. But uh, regular exercise is very important. You mentioned asthma, and that was going to be my next question. Are we seeing more cases of asthma these days than we were? Yes, uh, it's a problem with uh, the Western society. I think there are lots of theories about the epidemic of asthma and other allergic conditions and uh, there's thought that possibly our western societies are a bit too clean a bit too hygienic mm. and uh, allowing allergic problems such as asthma eczema anaphylaxis um, peanut allergy and the like becoming a bit more common but uh, probably one in four children will have a wheezy episode at some point in their lives mm. and uh, approximately one in ten adults will have asthma you mentioned about us not getting dirty I mean, once upon a time, the kids went out and played, and they played in the mud and, and did all of those things. And, and coming from England, we used to have a, a saying that used to be, the kids got to eat a peck of dirt before it dies. <laughs> we do tend to be, oh, your hands are dirty, we mustn't let you do this. And you change their clothes half a dozen times a day, all this sort of thing. So the kids really don't get a chance to build up an immune system, do they? Well, that's uh, part of the th this theory. Um, interestingly, they, they looked at the uh, incidence of asthma in the slums in, um, in South America and mm. found a very low incidence. Um, of course, lots of other uh, diseases and conditions yeah. there, but a very low incidence of asthma. And likewise, in, uh, in East Germany, um, once the wall came down, um, they found a lower incidence in the East Germans compared to the West German society and thought because mm. it was a, a more sort of basic farm uh, oriented lifestyle that uh, these children were protected because their immune system had, had been activated, if you like, in the right yeah. way rather than in the allergic yeah. way. I can remember in England, a family across the road from us, I think there were seven kids in summer and winter alike in England. The kids were often barefoot and mm -hmm. charging around. And the number of colds they got in comparison with the rest of the street seemed to be very small compared with the rest of us. And we could never be sure whether they were just lucky kids, but 
now I wonder whether they had indeed built up their immune system. Could could well have done. I'm not yeah. I'm not advising your listeners to go out and let their kids <laughs> run naked through the streets <laughs> while I win the dirt, but uh, um, perhaps a little less sort of um, uh, use of, of disinfectants and um, agents such as that. Talked about the uh, the 10 second rule when something hits the floor and um, you know allowing it to be picked up and, and eaten again but uh, some people vary that between five seconds and ten seconds but uh, that that's an option yeah. as well but I think um, I think we have become clean freaks uh, mm-hmm. in our Western societies and this might be a, a, an outcome of, uh, of that approach let's go back to asthma properly what does it actually do to the airways I suppose three main things uh, in uh, in asthma we uh, in the airways themselves you get a lot of swelling of the lining of the airways um, what's called edema the airway you get bronchoconstriction so the muscles around the airways contract and cause narrowing of the airways and you get a lot of mucus production as well so that can block the airways so those are the sort of three main things that occur within the airways themselves and if you get narrowing of the airways that's what causes the wheeze mm. of course irritation will cause a cough and you'll get breathless because you, you can't get the airflow mm. moving as well as you should be. Mm. So they're the, the main symptoms of asthma as well. And usually they're treated with um, something like Ventolin or, or something similar to... Yeah, I think uh, the treatment in asthma has changed quite dramatically over the last few years, and mm. we've got um, very effective agents to treat now, inhaled agents. Mm. Um, so Ventolin is what we call reliever therapy. Um, as, as generic names, salbutamol and different um, types of, of that around. But that affects and that, that helps with the contraction of the muscles around the airway. If you have more persistent type of asthma, then uh, using an anti-inflammatory agent such as steroids, um, inhaled corticosteroids, mm. something like flixotide um, or serotide is another one that uh, people um, are probably familiar with. Uh, that causes a reduction in the inflammation. It causes the re- the mucus to reduce in amount and also mm-hmm. the swelling or the other lining of the airways can reduce as well. So you don't, uh, don't get that, con- that narrowing of the airways. We call the steroid or other types of treatment, um, and there's an oral form called Singulair, which is an, a, a tablet form, um, which is given <coughs> just once a day. And uh, that, that's called um, a preventer therapy. So that's used regularly in the reliever therapy mm-hmm. when, when acute when uh, symptoms occur. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, we've, we've been able to manage asthma a lot more effectively. Um, it's important that uh, uh, patients with persistent asthma, more pervasive asthma, if you like, are, are seen regularly and reviewed and uh, their treatment adjusted accordingly. You're listening to Wellbeing, and today I'm talking to Dr. Bruce Whitehead. We mentioned briefly about sleep disorders in kids, and I'd like to talk a bit more about that. Are we the sort of parents who say, I want my child to go to bed at bedtime and stay there for the next 10 hours and then get up? And if the child has a disturbed sleep, we tend to worry. Or don't children seem to sleep as long as they used to? (laughs) Well, um, that could be quite true, That uh, your last statement there. I I think we're seeing a reduction in the uh, time of sleep that many of our young young people are, uh, are having nowadays. And that's related to a number of of different uh, uh, issues in modern day life, um, electronic games, um, lots of stimulation, um, uh, particularly in the evenings, um, caffe- caffeinated drinks, mm-hmm. of course, uh, high sugar content drinks can lead to that. So um, uh, they all stimulate the child and probably you know, will 
quite possibly mm. lead to reduced um, hours of sleep. I don't think we have as active a lifestyle as we, we once did, and mm. uh, I think as a result we don't probably sleep as, as well as, uh, as we, we did when we were much more physically active. Do you think it matters that we don't have or the children don't have 10 hours sleep? Well, um, uh, it's an interesting question. I think uh, you know yourself, if you don't sleep very well, you're a bit um, uh, bit cranky the next day. And uh, certainly that's the same for children as well. And um, if you're cranky and tired, you don't tend to learn as as much as you you Mm. possibly could do. And so sleep problems can lead to um, uh, cognitive impairment. Um, I mean, we're talking Mm. about the severe end of the spectrum, of course. Uh, but it's important to get a good night's sleep. Of course, during sleep is when young children uh, secrete their growth hormone, which um, uh, gets them to grow. So if they're not sleeping adequately, they may, they may not be growing adequately. And this can lead on to all sorts of other problems, like asthma and respiratory problems? Well, not so much, I don't think, asthma, um, but uh, certainly uh, can lead to problems uh, in their um, cognitive functioning. Um, certainly big, big studies looking at obstructive sleep apnea in young children um, causing problems with their cognitive development um, for probably the reasons I just outlined. Yeah. Mentioned a couple of times about sleep apnea. Mm-hmm. It's a, a phrase that I think we've probably all heard of and associate with adults. But can you explain to me exactly what it is? Sure. Well, it's uh, obstruction to airflow um, in the child um, and in a, the adult, it's the same problem. Um, so usually uh, re- reduced airflow and sometimes apnea, which means complete cessation of airflow. So in children, that's usually related to having some physical obstruction in their airway, and that's mainly related to big tonsils and big adenoids. Mm. In, in adults, uh, it's more related to probably being overweight and... Um, and having uh, more deposition around the airway, if you like, of, of fat and, uh, and other types of tissues that way. Um, so it's, it's slightly different conditions or causes of the, con- mm. this, the condition um, in the different age uh, groups. But uh, usually in children, if they've got obstruction, so they stop breathing at night, they can have apneas or pauses in their breathing of 10, 20 seconds sometimes, um, and uh, then they can often you know, gasp and have an arousal mm. um, uh, as a result of that. So um, snoring is one of the main features, but snoring plus these pauses is very important um, to be uh, to be considered and, and dealt with. Mm. Um, if it is related to big tonsils and big adenoids, removing those uh, surgically uh, usually tends to cure the problem in mm. the vast majority of patients. Um, you can get an adult type of obstructive sleep apnea occurring in younger children as well, and um, often uh, in more obese children um, and unfortunately we're seeing a, a bit more of a, an epidemic of obesity in, in young children and that can produce obstructive sleep problems as well. Well you've sort of taken the next question now from me because I was going to say with the increasing number of children overweight um, does this add to the to the problem? Sure absolutely I think um, we're seeing more and more children um, uh, with obesity, um, what we call morbid obesity, so very obese children that can affect their, their hormonal balance, ex- mm-hmm. etc. They can get type 2 diabetes, they can develop um, heart or preliminary stages mm-hmm. of heart problems and kidney problems and the like. So 
um, it, it, as regards sleep, it can cause obstructive sleep apnea. And of course, then you get in a bit of a vicious cycle because if you're not sleeping well, you're tired and cranky the next day. And um, I think most of your listeners will realize if you haven't had a good night's sleep, you're often hungry the next day and you eat more <laughs> and that can cause more obesity <laughs> and, and uh, you go into mm. a bit of a vicious cycle. Mm. Um, so it's important. We've, we've had some, uh, you know, some cases of children who have been um, obese with obstructive sleep apnea having to, re to um, have CPAP therapy, which is the treatment um, that adults have mm. um, often for this condition, um, and uh, with some uh, dedicated work on the child and the family's part, they've been able. To, the child's lost quite a lot of weight, and the obstructive sleep problems have disappeared. So, it, it, uh, you know, re reducing weight can lead to better sleep and uh, less obstruction um, in these children. You say that you don't. Um, treat the emotional side at least not very often but how about if a child is sleepwalking does that mm. a, that sort of come under your care well it does um, sleepwalking is a quite a common occurrence and mm. well, it's one of the what we call parasomnias so um, related to uh, to sleep activities but not a, what we call a sleep disorder breathing problem it's a, it's a behavioral problem if you like mm. uh, during sleep sleepwalking sleep talking um, Sleep or night terrors is another condition. Even bedwetting itself, uh, what we call aneurysis, uh, mm. can be part of that spectrum as well. But usually sleepwalking is a fairly benign condition and uh, most children outgrow it with time um, and uh, often just reassurance and making sure they're in a safe environment at night is, is probably all you need to do. Mm. Um, uh, probably uh, anyone who's been able to, to wake up a, or try to wake up a child's sleepwalk is... Uh, <laughs> bit traumatic and especially those with sleep terrors who mm. uh, are screaming inconsolably at night uh, can be a bit of a challenge as well but uh, there usually is a light at the end of the tunnel and, they, and most children outgrow this problem yeah. and it's not a sign of underlying psychological trauma or, or problems um, in, in most cases. You say about keeping the child safe and I know from personal experience that some kids can actually open the door and disappear down the street mm. so I guess that being safe is making sure that the house is secure, they can't get out, um, and you're aware as soon as they take off. Absolutely. I think uh, a simple technique of just having a bell on the door, uh, or the bedroom door, um, on the windows, and mm -hmm. like they can do very complex uh, manoeuvres mm -hmm. when they do sleepwalk. So um, making, making sure that uh, the adult responsible for looking after them at night uh, is, uh, is aware of their, their roamings at night. Um, mm -hmm. So simple Simple techniques such as uh, you know, a bell on the door is, is probably adequate. Dr Whitehead, thank you so much for coming in and giving me your, your time and telling us so much about kids. And I suppose we do know about them and we do know about their conditions, but often we just need reassurance that there is treatment available, uh, whether it be long-term or whatever, but there is treatment and people like yourself around to look after us. Yes. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Iris. I've been talking today to Dr Bruce Whitehead, Senior Staff Specialist in Paediatric Respiratory and Sleep Medicine at the John Hunter Children's Hospital in Newcastle, and he's also a Conjoint Associate Professor at the University of Newcastle. I'm Iris Nichols. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again with you very soon. And until then, we wish you well.